Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. My name is Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your Chest podcast moderator. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a great discussion on procedural medical education. We are fortunate to have Dr. Diana Kelm and Dr. Janae Heath as our guests. Dr. Kelm and her colleagues wrote a research article in the November 2020 Chest Journal, Characteristics of Effective Teachers of Invasive Bedside Procedures, a Multi-Institutional Qualitative Study. Dr. Kelm is an Assistant Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She is also the Associate Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program and the Rotation Director for the Medical ICU for the Internal Medicine Residency Program and her research interests focus on medical education, specifically related to procedural training and supervision. Dr. Heath wrote the accompanying editorial on procedural training, and Dr. Heath is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She serves as an associate program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program, and is a core faculty member for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program. The authors of this study conducted a multi-institutional qualitative study of pulmonary and critical care faculty and fellows to better understand characteristics of effective teachers, specifically of invasive bedside procedures. Now, Dr. Kelm, can you please describe how this study was conducted for our listeners? Yes. First of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation to discuss this study with you and Dr. Heath. I look forward to the discussion today. This was a multi-site qualitative study that was conducted using focus groups. The sites included Mayo Clinic Rochester, Oregon Health and Science Center, University of Michigan, and Beth Israel Deaconess. Fortunately, I was able to travel to all the sites so I could conduct the focus groups myself through internal funding from the Mayo Clinic Graduate Medical Education Program Innovation Award. In order to ensure a safe environment for participants to speak freely, we performed separate focus groups for PCCM fellows and faculty. So in the end, we had two focus groups for each site, and in total, eight. Once the focus groups were completed, we analyzed each transcript in detail for codes based on existing literature and constructs from social and situated learning theory. We reviewed and discussed coded data to combine codes, identify candidate themes through patterns of data, and look for relationship between things. We mapped our findings onto learning theories for the purpose of grounding the findings in a broader literature relevant to teacher training. Wonderful. Now, there has been prior research into traits of effective bedside teachers, but your study focused specifically on bedside procedural teaching. How is procedural training different than most other bedside teaching? That's a great question, or question, Gretchen. I would like to start my answer to this question with a story of how this study actually developed. So this study idea came from a moment that I remember quite vividly when I was a fellow in the ICU struggling with the central line. 
I had this very calm and supportive faculty with me whom let me troubleshoot and talked me through the challenges so that I was able to secure access on my own without him taking over. After that experience, I thought to myself, wow, how did, they, how did he stay so calm? Why didn't he take over? And I knew that moment would have been very different if I had another supervisor. So that got me into thinking, what makes an effective teacher of ICU procedures? With that in mind, I believe there are distinct differences between procedural and bedside teaching. Bedside teaching often allows time for teachers to engage in dialogue with the learner to ask questions, gauge understanding, and also ensure comprehension. Additionally, learners are able to take chances such as determination of antibiotics or often the frequent question of whether to diurese or give fluids. Thinking of procedures performed in controlled settings like the operating room or bronchoscopy sweep, these patients tend to be more stable, which would allow learners more time to think through anticipated problems and perform the procedure with faculty supervision. However, in the ICU, as you both know, things are much more unpredictable and dynamic. We perform procedures urgently on clinically unstable patients, which results in less time for teacher-learner discussions, and this leaves very little room for mistakes. Specific to the ICU, ICU procedural teachers need to balance patient comfort, current or impending hemodynamic instability, multidisciplinary team members, the ICU environment, the learner, in addition to the technical aspects of the procedure. So it is quite the balancing act that makes it truly difficult and unique to teach procedures in the ICU. Great. Now, you found from the focus groups that there were three themes among the successful procedural teachers. There were traits and behaviors and contextual elements that led to more effective teachers. Can you explain these categories for our listeners? Yes, of course. So based on our focus groups, we found three categories of themes related to characteristics of effective invasive bedside procedural teachers. Traits capture the intrinsic teacher qualities or characteristics. Behaviors denote the things that the teachers do or the actions that were visible to the learner. And then context includes the physical setting or other contextual factors that influence teaching effectiveness, including the teacher's ability to demonstrate certain certain behaviors. Now, what traits were perceived to be associated with more effective teachers? So predominantly, this included the ability to remain calm and patient, even when things do not go as planned. Trust was another factor. This included the ability to yield control during procedures to the learner and instilling confidence in the learner. Both fellows and faculty thought an effective teacher had to be competent, that they could get them out of a bind in the event of a challenge or complication. Fellows also highlighted the importance of adaptability. They appreciated teachers that were not rigid in, in their ways. I recall many fellows displaying frustration when teachers were very particular with certain aspects of the procedure that were really based on their preference or style. And then good communication was also discussed, but really focused on the ability to clearly verbalize procedural steps without actually taking over the task. And what behaviors were perceived to be associated with more effective teachers? I would split this up based on the temporal relationship of the procedure, so before, during, and after the procedure. Before the procedure, a pre-brief was thought to be an effective tool. The goal for the pre-brief is to understand prior learner experiences of the procedure, 
This discussion helps the teacher know how to best interact with the learner during the procedure and determine how much autonomy could be provided. Additionally, pre-briefs allowed a common understanding of the expectations so that both the learner and teacher would know how the encounter would unfold. Fellows felt that the pre-briefs prepared them for success and increased their confidence. During the procedure, effective teachers provided feedback that was clear, specific, and just in time. Teachers need to interrupt at the right time during procedures and give constructive feedback, encouragements, and reassurance. Additionally, effective teachers monitored and controlled the learning environment to ensure a calm and uninterrupted environment. After the procedure, effective teachers took time to debrief and provide feedback and reflection. Most, most fellows and faculty felt that the post-procedure feedback was part of the procedure itself and should be done as soon as the procedure was over, if at all possible. And lastly, autonomy was a behavior identified for effective teachers. Providing autonomy could be done explicitly, such as telling learners that they had control over a procedure, or implicitly through demonstrated actions, such as not scrubbing in or allowing learners to troubleshoot. I recall one fellow stating that when their, their faculty didn't scrub in with them, it gave them a boost in confidence, as if the faculty was saying, you got this. Now, those are traits that are more inherent and then behaviors that the teacher could control. What contextual elements of the procedure and the environment were perceived to be associated with better teaching? So personally, this was probably the most surprising finding as I didn't realize how much of our environment affected how we teach and supervise procedures. Faculty discussed the conflict they felt when there were two supervising physicians present. So the fellow supervising the, the resident and the faculty supervising the fellow. Conversely, fellows also felt this conflict as there were two faculty present for procedure, especially when they had conflicting approaches to the procedure and both were offering advice. Noise level in the room was another aspect discussed. Effective teachers worked to minimize crosstalk in the room and ensure that interruptions were minimized. And as you know, time is limited in the ICU, so time constraints was commonly discussed. Many, many faculty commented that it would be more efficient if they just did the procedure themselves versus teaching a learner. Institutional policies or norms also affected teaching ICU procedures. One institution had a limit on the number of allowable attempts for endotracheal intubation before anesthesia was called. So this put pressure on teachers and was thought to result in less autonomy for learners. Other institutions did not require teachers to be present for a procedure if the learner was quote-unquote competent, which did not allow opportunities for feedback or debriefing after procedures. And also some faculty had to balance clinical responsibilities in addition to the ICU. If a teacher and learner had a pre-existing relationship, that seemed to help foster trust, autonomy, and feedback. However, due to the varied learner schedules and the busy ICU setting, this longitudinal longitudinal relationship wasn't always possible. And lastly, patient-related factors affected the learning experience. Faculty were more likely to allow repeated attempts if the patient was relatively stable. Well, on the other hand, if a patient was critically ill, procedural teaching was often neglected. Thank you, Dr. Kelm. Now, Dr. Heath, in your editorial, you discussed how some facets of the procedural context are not modifiable by educators. Can you please then explain how the educator can address this to maximize learning in a less than optimal context? 
Yeah, of course. Um, and again, Dr. Winter, thank you for inviting me to participate. And Dr. Kelm, I want to commend you. This was a really well done study. So it was a really, um, really a joy to read uh, the work that you guys did. So um, Dr. Winter, just as you said, and just as Dr. Kelm had gone through, there's definitely many contextual elements that just can't be modifiable by the educators. And some are anticipated. On the other hand, some are unanticipated um, elements. So for example, for certain procedures, there might be institutional norms or policies that really supersede what the teacher's traits or behaviors might be. So a classic example of this would be in the setting of intubations, where a, at certain institutions, a single failed intubation attempt might require anesthesia to step in and be involved. Um, and Dr. Kelm actually raised this within her study as a case at one of the institutions that they did focus groups at. Um, alternatively, sometimes unexpected contextual elements might arise, such as rapid changes in clinical acuity, um, time, as Dr. Kelm had noted. Um, and so it highlights that some of these contextual elements aren't always able to be predicted. Um, however, I think the really important takeaway and the, the interesting thing to think about this study is the overlay both with those contextual elements, but the behaviors that um, an individual and a teacher might be able to do. And so what I mean by that is this has showcased that um, to address those non-modifiable contextual factors, certain behaviors such as pre-briefing a behavior or the post-procedure debrief are really critical and were highlighted in her study as um, attributes that really make for effective bedside procedural teachers. Um, and so in the case of intubations, a teacher might say, uh, as a warning, this is our institutional policy, So, um, but just normalizing that that is part of the process, um, set those expectations, and then also addressing that in the post-procedure debrief. So I think it's a really uh, important highlight of how these overlap with each other and how important not just the contextual elements, but the behavioral elements and some of the other factors are so critical to being a really effective bedside procedural teacher. Great. Now, Dr. Kelm, you've discussed things that were found to be identified with more effective teachers. Did your study identify any specific things that were associated with less effective procedural teaching? Yeah, so in their focus group, sometimes it was actually easier to think of less effective teachers as those may have left more memorable moments, but in a negative way. Some of the specific things that we did here were that anxious teachers created nervousness in learners, Ineffective teachers were unable to talk the learner through what needed to be done in a hands-off manner. These teachers tended to jump in, take over procedures, or even yell or criticize learners. Often they were stuck in their ways, very rigid and inflexible in how they do procedures as well. And you mentioned that study participants emphasized interpersonal aspects of successful teachers more than technical aspects. I wonder, do you think that finding may relate to medical teaching in general? For instance, do learners prefer teachers with better teaching skills to those with more content expertise? That's a great question. I do think so. The learning climate is critical to ensure effective learning. Creating a safe environment often takes interpersonal skills such as described in this study. For teaching in general, we want learners to feel comfortable to ask questions and feel safe to be wrong. Related to procedures, we want learners to feel safe to ask for help or acknowledge errors. So as we found in this study, fellows still do want their teachers to be competent so that they, if they do get stuck in a situation, that they can rely on their teachers to get them out. 
I think that would be the same for medical teaching as a whole. You also mentioned that some of the identified traits may be more inborn personality traits that a teacher kind of either has or doesn't have, whereas some of the behaviors can be learned. What things can educators do to enhance their teaching skills when they may not inherently possess some of the described positive traits like calmness or patience? Yeah, I do believe that effective teachers have inborn traits but I also believe that these behaviors can be learned to demonstrate traits that may be otherwise lacking. First of all, self-reflection is key. Teachers have to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. From there, you can work on those weaknesses by adjusting behaviors. Just like anything else, this takes practice. You mentioned calmness. Let's take that. So staying calm during an invasive bedside procedure in the ICU can be, be hard. To be honest, I'm sometimes freaking out inside when I'm supervising a procedure. But as teachers, we need to display calmness, not only for the learner, but for the patient and other multidisciplinary team members in the room. Behaviors that help display calmness could be the use of a procedural checklist, which helps ensure standardization and patient safety, monitoring your tone of voice as the teacher, speaking in a normal voice at a normal speed, in the way that questions are asked. Instead of criticizing performance, teachers could state, instead of that angle, let's drop it to 45 degrees or providing supportive comments such as, I like the way you're holding the needle with that ultrasound. Let's keep doing that until we see it through the vein. And in the way feedback's provided, instead of saying stop, like you're really concerned something's happening and you scream stop, consider saying, let's hold for a moment instead. And that, those things can display calmness rather than um, instill anxiety in learners. Thank you. Now, Dr. Heath, you mentioned in your editorial that feedback to teachers on non-modifiable traits may actually negatively impact a faculty's openness to change. Can you please discuss that and what you propose to minimize that while still providing useful feedback to educators? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad you asked that because I think um, I think as we're thinking about, um, as I, we'll probably get to later, what future steps for this is, is really thinking about um, faculty development and how we can be better educators at the bedside. And one of the key pieces to that is really effective feedback. And so um, we know from the feedback literature that it's really critical for um, effective feedback that we're commenting on behaviors and not the person or personality traits. So, and actually when they've looked at this in prior studies, it's found that if that feedback is um, given poorly, so perhaps commenting only on behaviors, there was a much higher risk of not being accepted by the recipient. And actually some studies showed that it had detrimental impacts on subsequent behavior. So, so really focusing on um, behaviors as a feedback is so important. So using um, Dr. Kelm's example of calmness, which was something that was highlighted again and again and anecdotally really aligns with my own experience as a learner as I was learning procedures, I would encourage the feedback instead to say be more calm, to be um, to instead focus on the behavior things that are leading to that perception. So what actions that the teacher is doing is leading to that perception of them being anxious or not calm? Or alternatively, what are the actions that are leading to them 
um, being perceived as calm. So, for example, um, was the faculty member, the teacher, repeatedly grabbing at the syringe throughout the procedure? Were they repeatedly asking questions at every single step of the procedure? Um, so, focusing on those behavior changes that are giving the perception of calmness or not calmness will really give faculty and teachers some specific and actionable items to work on. And that's critical to um, both them accepting their feedback and then improve teaching uh, for the long term. Um, and I also think it's really important to note that some of these um, behavior traits might have underlying implicit biases within it. So really focusing on the actions um, rather than the personality traits or the, the person might uh, mitigate some of those issues with biases that we have. Thanks, Dr. Heath. I, I really like what you said there about focusing on behaviors. And shameless plug here, um, at Chess 2020, if you listen to the feedback um, session that we have prepared, you're going to hear a lot about focusing on specific behaviors instead of personality traits or perceived intentions as an educator. And I think we could all improve our feedback skills by training on how to really pay attention to those behaviors and give feedback directed towards them. Yeah, good. Dr. I'm glad you guys are doing that. I'm excited to listen in. <laughs> Thanks. Dr. Kelm, what do you see as future steps for this research? That's a good question. So, unfortunately, at this time, we don't have a great way to assess and improve our procedural supervision. Self-reflection is a great thing to do, as discussed before, but not standard of practice and not measurable. There are some best practice guidelines on how to teach procedures, Shout out to Drs. Anna Brady and Rosemary Adamson on their book chapter on procedural teaching and the medical education and pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine advanced concepts and strategies textbook. However, our next step is to create a faculty assessment tool using the data that we collected from this multi-site qualitative study for faculty development as it relates to procedural supervision to allow more standardized and objective measurements so that way we can all get better. Fortunately, we are actually working on this right now and hope to have a new assessment tool out within the next year. I want to thank you both for sharing your time and expertise with us today. And as we finish up, if you could each give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from your experiences in this study, what do you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? Uh, yeah, so first, I, I really want to, again, um, congratulate Dr. Kelm and her colleagues. This was such a well-done and rigorous qualitative study, and so I think this is a really great example um, for med-ed researchers out there to refer to, um, so well done. And then I also just think that this is a really novel and exciting area for future faculty development, so I'm very excited to hear that that's what she and her group are working on at the moment. The procedure realm is so unique from other teaching settings, as I think we've all both experienced both as the learner and as a teacher, and so it'll be really exciting to see what else uh, she and the group come out with. Thank you so much, and thanks again for the opportunity to chat about this study. It's been a really great learning experience for me. I guess I have three take-home points I want listeners to remember. First, not related to the study per se, I would just encourage the audience to listen to those aha moments. So this study came from that, and now to see it come to this point makes me very proud of this research team. It's a true joy doing something you love to do, and I'm very thankful for the support I get from my division and my mentors. Second, behaviors was the most frequently discussed characteristics of effective teachers of invasive procedures. Recall, these are the actions visible to learners, and we found that these relate temporally to the procedure itself. So pre-brief before the procedure, give direct, specific feedback during the procedure, 
and debrief after the procedure. And I love Dr. Heath's comments regarding giving, you know, focusing on the procedure and not the person per se. And I am excited to see what CHEST is doing with that. And then lastly, teaching ICU procedures is hard and challenging, but it's so rewarding. As teachers, we need to do our part to improve our own skills at supervising these procedures so that way we can help the next generation and ensure patient safety. So I would urge listeners to take this podcast, this study, and reflect back on your own practices and see what you can do to improve. I know I have with what I have learned. And on a personal note, my husband is a radiologist and currently doing a fellowship where he is performing and supervising procedures. So it's been really fun to see how he himself has implemented aspects of this study into his own practice. Wonderful. So a big thank you to both Dr. Kelm and Dr. Heath for a great conversation. And a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHESS podcast. Until next time.